as well as their family, friends and carers. We're here to talk if you are feeling socially isolated, seeking information about mental health or mental health services, or just need someone to talk to. As a peer-based service, everyone working at Huawei's Helpline has a lived experience of mental health issues or disability. Huawei's Helpline is a national service and operates Monday to Friday, 9am to 9pm, excluding public holidays. So if you're struggling yourself or are struggling to help someone else, please call Wellways Helpline on 1300 500. That's 1300. Green Left Weekly Radio. There's one newspaper that is independent of powerful capitalist interests, and that is Green Left Weekly. It's the people's voice committed to human and civil rights, ecological sustainability, democracy and equality. It presents ideas that the mainstream media won't. Greenleft is a leading source of local, national and international news with analysis, discussion and debate to strengthen the anti-capitalist movement. It helps expose the lies of the capitalist press and puts the voices of the marginalised and the oppressed at the centre of fighting for a better world and helps us understand the political developments unfolding around us. Good morning, everyone. You are listening to Green Left Radio um, from lockdown um, for the second time in a row because the lockdown got extended um, till this coming Tuesday. Now, we for our presenters today, we have myself, Jacob, and we also have a special guest um, who's going to be helping us today. I want to let me allow him to introduce himself. I'm Felix. I've actually come along onto this radio program a few times over the last couple of years, but good to be back. Yeah, so um, we're very happy. Yeah, Felix um, is right. He has been on our program a number of times, um, but this is the first time he's been back in years, um, probably because he doesn't have any work at the moment. <laughs> Thanks, Jacob. <laughs> I mean, he voluntarily quit because he, uh, because he was sick of being exploited by his boss. Thanks, yeah. <laughs> yep, no, it's good to, uh, good to finally be free of the shackles of employment for a time. Well, just before I announce what we have coming up, um, just an important kind of acknowledgement. I'd like to acknowledge that FreeCR today is being broadcast to you from the wandering land of the Kulin Nation. We like to pay our respect um, to any elders past and present and acknowledge that this always was, always will be Aboriginal land. So... Um, I guess um, for the first part of the program, usually we cover, I guess, some sort of headline kind of news. Now, I've sort of just, me and Felix were kind of quickly looking through the headlines <laughs> before um, before we uh, um, started airing this. And I guess one of the, um, one interesting news story that just popped up in ABC. Now, obviously, some of our listeners probably know that the COVID-19 pandemic is still raging in, um, in Australia at the moment, with New South Wales recording its highest number of, ca- um, of cases um, yesterday. I forgot the, um, the actual kind of figure, but it was somewhere in the realm of the hundreds or, or in a, over a hundred. And one of the kind of concerning things about the statistic was at least 78 of those cases um, that were revealed yesterday were infectious, uh, were out in the community while infectious. But another kind of interesting story that sort of popped up is um, it was sort of an exclusive um, ABC because um, basically they, I'm, I, I sort of have a, di- a bit of a different line in terms of how, I guess, the mainstream media would, 
um, or the ABC is kind of presenting this. So basically, the story is there's been this big expose that um, 4.6 billion um, in JobKeeper went to businesses that increased their turnover at the height of the COVID-19 pandemic. Now, that's not necessarily like, I don't necessarily want to say that those businesses didn't necessarily kind of deserve JobKeeper. Um, because, of course, when they filled in the application, clearly their turnover was going down as a result of the COVID-19 pandemic. But I think it does reveal some things. And I, I noticed that the Labor Party is on the attack of the Morrison government. Why This is an example of, I guess, of how wasteful um, the government is with their government spending. And... One of the one of the things is JobKeeper was ultimately actually during the height of the pandemic was actually a very good thing. It was actually a good thing for the workers who received it. While it was always a flawed kind of system, it was designed really for the interest of employers and not necessarily workers. Um, there were a lot of workers who actually, you know, got a lot out of the fact that JobKeeper existed. But I find it. I always find. I always find all these kind of stories about the rotting of JobKeeper, for example, and then now this story to be always interesting because the government deliberately designed the JobKeeper program in such a way that it excluded um, universities. Um, and it also excluded um, charity, well, certain charities. I think some charities might have had access, but I think a lot of charities and not-for-profits weren't necessarily eligible for um, for JobKeeper. And and then, of course, and then you find out that all these for-profit kind of businesses um, who received JobKeeper then actually increased their turnover, which just sort of... It's a bit make it's a bit of a funny sort of indictment of how the government designs these sort of elaborate rules, which actually excluded the ones who probably needed it the most. Oh well, they definitely took advantage of this crisis. Like for one thing, it's it's quite clear they used JobKeeper in a culture war way, excluding people they didn't like, including everyone they did like. And I do think like obviously something like JobKeeper was necessary because people were getting laid off and, you know, it was bad for people to go to work, but, you know, the, the system was not designed for that. But um, it was the JobKeeper was deliberately targeted at employers, as you said, Jacob, that and a completely different scheme would have directed all that money to the employees. Like, it would have mm. been directed to the people who were being laid off um, rather than giving all the money and basically power to corporations and employers to then dispense to employees and keep whatever profit they made out of it so like i think it was deliberately designed like that it is it is just it's the class position of the liberal party to service uh companies and corporations and that's the way that the scheme is designed and yes workers did benefit out of it because they got the trickle down effect you know basically uh, and there's also a completely different scheme that is never talked about, which came along with JobKeeper, which is the uh, cash booster scheme. No one ever mentions this, but this, like, I know JobKeeper was worth $75 billion or something for uh, 2020, but cash booster was worth nearly, like, $45 billion, and it was for any company uh, that needed cash flow boost, they just got money from the government during this time. And it wasn't even designed to go to the workers, to the employers, uh, to the employees. It was purely to keep their profit margins looking healthy and good for this whole time. 
And I think that this would be if the if the opposition wanted to really point out complete waste and uh, inefficiency of of spending, the cash booster scheme is sitting right there. I don't know, like it's it's too esoteric or something to rile people's people's emotions up, but it's just a spectacular amount of money that could have funded so many services, kept so many people who suffered during the pandemic. Uh, they could have funded all sorts of things for them. They could have kept them out of the dole lines and and yeah like <laughs> that is a complete waste of money that's just gone to uh profit yeah uh, to the profits of companies who are looking pretty good at the moment yeah um i think that's a that's a great point um felix because i mean one of the kind of points i sort of like to make is this whole kind of notion of you know the the morrison government likes to kind of go on about financial kind of responsibility you know we can't spend too much money on healthcare or education um, because states in investing in in those things is not is not financially seen we have to balance the budget and of course that sort of line of balancing the budget from the perspective of capitalist governments is always incredibly ideological they'll always give millions of money to um, maintain and um, they'll give billions of money to maintain the offshore detention camps they'll give millions of dollars or billions to the to the military um, and of course then when it comes to their corporate mates, they'll always give them kind of tax breaks or or give them oh, elaborate yeah. kind of boosted. That's um, an, that's another one that's come up. Like um, we've just heard in the last few days that uh, the Labor opposition party is going to uh, just wave through these insane tax cuts that the government's proposing to high income earners. Yeah. Like it's worth it's worth tens of billions of dollars a year, and and like. Everyone is basically in of agreement now. Trickle down economics does not work. Like, well, aren't any serious people who? Are... Well, the <laughs> Labor's um, justification for that is we don't want to alienate the aspirational Australians, as if as if everyone, like every single Australian, um, can somehow become some millionaire or or. Yeah, well, a small business owner overnight. It's it's not really the aspirational class that's benefiting from this because aspirational people are people who are down and out at the moment and have grand dreams that they want to fulfil. But if you're earning two hundred thousand dollars a year, you've made it. You're not aspirational anymore. <laughs> yeah. All right. Well, I might just go. Um, we might just conclude discussion because I got a pre-recording that I was going to play from one of our green left shows on why nuclear is not the solution, uh, or not the climate solution. Um, so I'll go play just to play a quick announcement. Um, you're listening to Green Left Radio on FreeCR eight five five AM. Hi, I'm Kim Salmon. I'd like to have a quick word about uh, public radio, particularly three CR. The thing about public radio is that it's more open than the more formatted types of radio to what's going on around it. So when you listen to it, you're more likely to hear a reflection of real life. And 3CR being in the heart of Smith Street, Collingwood, is a particularly good example of what I'm talking about. If you'd like to uh, subscribe, the number is 94198377. You've been listening. You're listening to Green Left um, Radio. And for the next um, 29 minutes, I'm just going to play um, 
um, episode of a Green Left show that was um, um, titled Why Nuclear is Not the Climate Solution, which is an interview that um, um, Green Left's Alex Bainbridge did with Simon, but- Simon Butler, um, who is actually a for- um, former editor of Green Left and also um, a regular kind of, um, and also been um, a long-term kind of climate activist. So we're going to be hearing um, this pre-recorded interview um, um, for the next part of the program. You are listening to Green Left Radio on FreeCR. One, one, two, three. Hello and welcome to the people-powered Green Left podcast, where we give a voice to the 99% and not the big corporations. If you think this project is important, please consider becoming a supporter today. Now, on to our latest episode. Hi there, thanks for joining us today for this latest episode of the Green Left Show. Uh, my name's Alex Bainbridge from Green Left, and uh, very, it's great to be with you here today. I want to start off by acknowledging that we're recording this show on stolen Aboriginal land. Our sovereignty was never ceded, and this remains, always was, and always will be Aboriginal land, and we pledge ourselves to ongoing support for uh, struggles for justice for Aboriginal people. I also want to let you know at the outset that if you like the work that we do, the best thing you can do is become a Green F supporter, if you're not already. Uh, it's, it's the best way to support our work, and it makes a huge difference. Plans start from just $5 a month, and you get all the access to the content that we produce, as well as showing us support for an invaluable uh, eco-socialist project. Today we're going to be discussing nuclear power, and in particular the dubious left-wing arguments against it. I'm here today with Simon Butler. Simon is a former editor of Greenft, and he's also the co-author with Ian Angus of the book Too Many People? Question mark about the uh, the, the dubious arguments about overpopulation. So what's prompted this discussion today is that um, Bhaskar Sankara, who's a founding editor of Jacobin magazine, uh, has recently published an article in The Guardian newspaper where he's arguing in favour of nuclear power as a source of supposedly clean energy. He writes that, quote, even where we've been investing in renewable technology, without nuclear or the right geography that allows hydroelectricity, we've had no choice, he says, no choice, but to rely on fossil fuels to fill the gap. I just want to start, Simon, by asking, is this true? No, it's, it's definitely not the case. So he, he does cite some examples such as Germany and the, uh, New York State of where the closure of, of nuclear power plants has led to being replaced by fossil fuels. Um, but that is purely a political decision made by those authorities. Um, so there is... There's, the, the reason, the only, that's the only reason why fossil fuels have replaced nuclear in those cases. So I, I, I don't agree at all that if there's no choice but to go with, with nuclear power um, at all. So nu- nu- definitely in, in renewables with, with the, is, is, is definitely a, uh, uh, an option in all those cases. Your response included 10 reasons for why we should oppose nuclear energy. Do you want to perhaps just start by outlining your top three reasons why we shouldn't, why progressive people shouldn't be supporting nuclear energy? That's hard. I wouldn't even say top. I can, I can, I can look at three. I'm sure, um, but yeah, but I think it's hard to rank them, isn't it? The first one I would say is that it is reckless in the extreme um, to build new nuclear power plants in a warmer, wilder future. So nuclear power is already unsafe, uh, but it will become even more unsafe as we see extreme weather events associated with climate change, which are already locked in. And we know we haven't actually even seen the worst of those weather events yet. Um, 
I'm still reeling a little bit, which perhaps you are too, from the the record temperatures in Canada just now, for example, where the record has been broken by 4.6 degrees Celsius um, for the hottest temperature ever recorded in Canada. Normally, temperatures uh, are broken by fractions of a degree, but 4.6 degrees in one hit is absolutely um, frightening. But the it's, it is so reckless to build power plants. Imagine, I, I put in the article, imagine if a nuclear power plant had been in the way of the wildfires that raged across Australia last year. Or, or imagine if uh, a super super typhoon uh, flattened the city and there was a nuclear power plant there. So there, there's much talk uh, from advocates of nuclear power that the designs are fail-safe now, that they are much safer, um, and that uh, Chernobyl-style meltdown is impossible, but it's critical to remember that in Fukushima, a much newer power plant, the fail-safes all worked as intended. However, the power plant was hit by a loss of power, complete loss of power through an unpredictable accident, which meant that they were unable to cool the nuclear, nuclear the, the uranium rods. Um, they, ran, they were unable to pump water there to, to cool it. So even if the reaction stops and the, and the nuclear fuel drops down as intended into a pool of water, if you lose power, you are screwed. Um, and so there is, it is absolutely reckless uh, to build new nuclear power plants when we know there's going to be so much more unpredictable and extreme weather events. So that's number one. It's too dangerous. Second, I'd say <clears throat> it's almost a, a fruit, fruitless argument because nuclear is not renewable or plentiful. So to say that nuclear is a climate change, an answer to climate change, a solution to climate change, uh, that we can, uh, is, is this power source which is useful for combating climate change is, is really not true in any sense. It forgets that, we, that uranium is not a plentiful resource. So one, I did do cite one example, one study which has been done, which estimated that if you were to replace 70% of current world energy use with nuclear power plants, you'd run out of uranium in approximately six years' time. If you trebled nuclear power from what it is today in order to fight climate change, supposedly, you'd run out of uranium in, in a couple of decades. So it is no, there is no way that nuclear power can make a big dent in carbon emissions anyway. So it's a quite fruitless uh, to, to, to pose it as, as, as part of the solution. Um, all it does at present is investing nuclear power, plant, power is far more expensive than renewable alternatives. So it means diverting uh, resources away um, from the, far, the, the, the kind of energy, clean energy we can roll out quicker. Thirdly, I'd say it is it, it's so rarely discussed by advocates of nuclear power, where does this uranium come from? And the, uh, they never want to talk about it. It just somehow magically appears. But uh, the majority of uranium, which is mined around the world, and the deposits which remain are on indigenous lands. And the nuclear power of nuclear industry has treated indigenous people's culture and indigenous people's lands as a, uh, as a sacrifice zone for its entirety that has been around. And we should not continue its expansion or its continuation. So we need to listen to people like the Mirror people in the Northern Territory who have always opposed nuclear mining on their lands from the Ranger Mine, which is fortunately now finally closing, but it's done immense, 
uh, immense and, and irrecoverable uh, damage uh, to, to the lands there, but also the Jabaluka deposit as well, which has always been a danger that, that could be mined out too. Um, we need to listen to those critics, Indigenous people around the world, who said it's an unfair burden for them to have to be at the front, the front to have to deal with all the, the consequences of uranium mining, and then also be asked to, in some cases, to, to, to host the, the, um, the waste as well. Um, so the people who, uh, people who advocate for uranium mining and for nuclear power want to ignore the environmental racism, which is so closely tied uh, to, to, to the nuclear power industry. And we can know, we, can, we simply should rule that out. Um, continuing that is a great injustice. Do you want to elaborate some of the other arguments that you made about why we shouldn't be supporting nuclear? Sure. I mean, the, the, we know that fresh water use is uh, fresh water shortages are, uh, are going to be a big concern in a, in a warmer world, but nuclear power is the most water intensive um, energy source that we have. Um, so it, again, it, it's, it's just very, very bad idea to, to, to roll out more nuclear when fresh water is going to be of such a concern for the future. We need to, to nurture that resource. Um, it's more expensive, as I said, um, so it diverts resources away from not just other energy sources, but from other things that we need to do um, for, for a safe climate, So such as rolling out uh, health care for everyone who needs it, even climate reparations for the global south, which is something we don't discuss enough. That's an essential part of, of, a, of a climate, climate a response, which is meant with climate justice. Um, so nuclear power is, is, is bad for that reason. The nuclear waste issue is there's no solution to nuclear waste. And I was irritated by um, Sankara's argument in, in, in The Guardian that said that there's a new breed of nuclear power which eats its own waste. Um, that's not true. It does not exist. It's a theory only. There is no such nuclear power plants which use its own waste and eat it. So there is no solution to, to nuclear waste. And that's not even, a, it's not just a, a sort of a, a terrible thing to do to our descendants to, to allow them to inherit this problem of, of waste which lasts for, for millions of years in the most, um, in some cases. But it's also a very present problem so, for instance, I report about or refer to the Marshall Islands, where in the 70s, the, after the nuclear weapons test, the US government built a concrete sort of uh, dome over waste in, in a, an island in the Marshall Islands. And this is when Marshall Islands was a colony of, of the US as well. Um, now, they didn't foresee what would happen with climate change. And so this rising sea levels mean that the whole structure may collapse and that radioactive soil and radioactive contaminated waste is just going to very likely to quite soon um, go out into the, into, into the surrounding environment, into the lagoon there. And the US has simply just refused to give any assistance either. So it's not even that nuclear waste is some future problem in a lot of places around the world. Um, climate change is going to mean that the, the, the supposedly secure waste repositories will not become secure. So that's another big problem. Finally, one of the, the biggest ones as well is nuclear weapons. Again, I think there was a, a, a claim made in the Guardian article, which I think is very dangerously wrong, which is that uh, people's popular, uh, which is a popular association, um, which is made by people between nuclear power and nuclear weapons is incorrect. And it, it is, as Sankara said, it was drawn out of a kind of paranoia associated with sort of the Cold War. 
Uh, however, the, the, it is what is very clear is that in countries such as Britain and the United States, the authorities and the military and the government themselves draw a clear link between nuclear power, civil nuclear power industry and nuclear weapons. Um, they themselves very openly say that maintaining civil nuclear industry is important for their nuclear weapons programs. And the reason for that is that because every country which has a civil nuclear uh, uh, um, uh, industry has reprocessing plants and has the facilities which you can also use very quickly to make nuclear weapons. You have uh, technicians with the expertise um, to be able to make a transition to nuclear weapons very quickly as well. And so that, and also the fact that the civil nuclear industries in the UK and the US, which are more expensive, which are heavily subsidised by government, because those industries actually subsidise, by, you know, by sharing the facilities, they subsidise the nuclear weapons industry as well, nuclear weapons programs as well. Every country which has a, nuclear, uh, a civil nuclear uh, power industry will have the facilities, which means they are able um, if there is a political, is there a government so politically inclined, they, they will be able to quickly build a nuclear weapon. And to be honest, it's no secret that's why there are sections of the Australian ruling class would love to have some more nuclear power plants for that very reason. They see it as a military and strategic choice. It has absolutely no, no, no environmental, it's not a savvy green choice. It is for them, it's a military option. So that's something we should not downplay and, and pretend that that connection doesn't exist. A strong part of Vaskar's argument is that in some cases where nuclear power plants have closed down, they haven't necessarily been replaced by renewable energy. So he makes a, he makes a strong argument that in such, in such situations where renewable energy is not available, we should keep nuclear power plants going for, uh, for, you know, until such time as renewable can replace them. Do you think there's any validity in this argument at all? Um, well, I would counter that with that there is already renewable energy is sufficiently advanced right now to do the job. So we are in an emergency situation. We need 100% clean, safe and renewable and sustainable energy as soon as possible. Um, so fossil fuels and nuclear need replacing at emergency speed. Um, so there is no, I don't accept that there's an option for let's do nuclear, let's do, let's leave nuclear far off future, um, which I think that is, is part of the, the argument that let's, let's keep nuclear for the next few decades. Um, but we need to replace, we need clean, safe, renewable energy immediately or as soon as possible. And they should, I don't accept there's any delay and I don't accept there's any need for technological uh, development in, in, in sorry, solar and wind and other renewable energies. We have known that there's been plans available uh, for for a decade, a more well thought out costed plan for, for transition as countries such, such as Australia to 100% renewables. That technology has only got better in the intervening 10 years. So I don't accept that there's any need to wait. Um, we need to do that as soon as possible. Also, continuing nuclear power um, means continuing to treat Indigenous people around the world as sacrifice zones. And that, again, that environmental racism, which is aligned with, with the nuclear power industry, we cannot just say that, well, because we have to fight climate change, we're going to screw over the Mirai people or other Indigenous people around the world. That's not acceptable. They've already, uh, they need, they need to, their rights need to be respected too as we transition to a sustainable climate. Well, I was going to ask actually about 
exactly that the the feasibility and the reliability of renewable energy but i mean you've sort of you have covered that uh, i guess one thing to though to go back to Basco's argument he made a big point about renewable energy not being dispatchable in the way that uh, nuclear and hydroelectricity is do you think that's a fair point or could you address could you address that point in particular Yes, I mean, it, it, it definitely is dispatchable. Um, so it's dispatchable through many different ways. Um, there's dispatchable if, if there is hydro available, you can, you can store the water in, in hydro plants um, by pumping the water uphill and then releasing it again later. Um, but it's also dispatchable um, through batteries and there's other ways to dispatch it, such as molten salt. Um, so he makes the argument that batteries or the, the technology is not advanced enough um, to be able to do it. But, you know, for instance, that uh, more than 10 years ago, Beyond Zero Emissions in Australia produced a report um, with, you know, produced by people who are engineers and, and people who are experts in the field showing that the technology 10 years ago um, was, was, was there to have dispatchable renewable energy. So it's only, nothing to not, it was there 10 years ago, so it's definitely there now. So I just, I think that unfortunately, this is a problem with the pro nuclear argument. Unfortunately, that the, the, the pro-nuclear argument, they always say that it's a choice between nuclear and coal. But in order to make the argument, they always have to downplay the ability of renewables to do the job, which means, this is the danger of their argument, the danger is that their arguments reinforce and they dovetail with the argument from climate deniers who also say renewables aren't up to the job. So, for instance, former Australian Prime Minister John Howard, his favourite thing to say, his favourite thing to say was that the sun doesn't shine all the time, the wind doesn't blow every day, and that's why we can't have renewables. And Sankara actually makes a similar argument in his article, which, again, I found very irritating just because we heard that so much from John Howard. Now, the, the point is that the Beyond Zero Emissions and other, other people have made it as well, the sun is always shining somewhere and the wind is always shining somewhere. And so if you have a modern grid and you have, a, if, you, if you match up solar solar resources and wind resources in areas where we know how the weather patterns are, uh, are going to play out, you can, with a great level of certainty, over a large area, um, determine that, yes, we're going to have enough power um, within the ver within you know, with, with enough redundancy as well um, to, to deal with unexpected um, lack of sunlight or unexpected lack of wind, et cetera. So it's, it's really a myth um, to say that, that the fact that renewable energy is intermittent means that it can't be reliable. Um, those things are well known and well dealt with by people who are, who are experts in this field. Well, there's one other thing I would say though about renewable energy um, too, though, is that there is uh, a kind of uh, there is an eco-modernist version of the renewables argument as well. So the eco-modernist argument is that we just can roll out renewable energy infinitely and that there's the, the power of the sun and the wind is infinite and that we just need to build endless wind turbines in the solar panels to replace fossil fuels and that will solve our problem as well. Um, whereas I don't think that's an acceptable ecological um, outcome either. Um, solar and, and wind, for example, still do rely on, on extraction of resources um, that are not unlimited. Uh, and, and so we need to be very, very careful that we don't, um, that we need to sort of make sure that that, uh, that, that a transition to renewables is not just seen as another way to continue business as, as usual with, with renewable energy too. There needs to be, as well as that, um, a 
massive drive on energy efficiency. So overall using less energy. Um, also would mean to rationalize well, what things uh, in, a, in, a, in, a, in a sort of socially conscious and equitable plan of how do we ensure that that energy is used in a way which is most efficient, but also which means that everyone, human rights and, and basic rights are met, but we don't waste energy use on superfluous products that we don't need, et cetera. Um, so, but also we've been challenging this notion that we need uh, an economy which grows forever and which energy use increases forever. That is not at all sustainable. And the climate crisis and the wider ecological crisis is proof of that. So it also means that renewable energy is not uh, a panacea. Renewable energy has to be twinned with fundamental social change, has to be twinned with a move away from, from grow or die capitalism into a sort of an eco-socialist kind of society as well. Um, so renewable energy is only part of, of the solution in that sense, in my, in, in my view. When addressing climate change, I mean, it's very clear this is a huge and pressing problem and it's also a very urgent problem. And the main enemy, the main roadblock standing in the way towards a, a transition to actually deal with it properly is the is the big fossil fuel corporations. You know, some people might think that it's not appropriate to be getting into debates with others on the left who actually support nuclear power, however, however misguided that might be, when the main enemy is the fossil fuel corporations. Do you have any comments you'd make about that? And they are the main enemy. Um, they are one of the, the key enemies. And so, of course, most of our energy must be must be put in, into into fighting them. At the same time, um, these debates, I think, are actually quite clarifying and healthy too. Um, we need to debate you know, with each with one another what what kinds of solutions um, are useful, and which kinds of solutions are false and lead us in the wrong direction. Particularly the fact that. Uh, we are heading into a, we need a, a, a more robust and resilient energy system for the future. It means that dangerous options, great, uh, options which are tied with militarism, such as nuclear power, options which are tied with legacy of environmental racism, they are unacceptable in, if we're going to build a world with social justice. Um, so I think that, yes, it's certainly the case that, um, that the fossil fuel industry is a much greater threat immediately perhaps than, than, the, than the nuclear power industry, which is dying. The nuclear power industry is in deep trouble. And I think that the left, people on the left who support the nuclear industry are certainly in a minority and they're not gaining, gaining much um, support either. We still need to debate those things and we need to be very, very clear about that we are not going to allow the world, we're not going to fight climate change by allowing certain parts of the world to become sacrifice zones. We're not going to leave some people behind because some people have to deal with the nuclear waste. Some people have to deal with the uranium mines. Some people have to deal with the accidents that happen. And that's not acceptable either. Well, we're in a situation where this, where the climate emergency is so pressing and so urgent. I mean, are there, are there any other comments that you'd like to make about this issue at all? Um, well, I, I think that there is, there's a lot of great work going on. So it is, it is often... I think it's quite hard, it's quite confronting for those who are paying attention to see things such as Australia's bushfires last year. I was you know, no longer live in Australia, but to see that was absolutely, you know, it was devastating to see that. Um, what, the three billion animals who, who died, for example, and to think that that might become a regular feature of life in Australia is terrifying. Um, and to see that the floods in, in Mozambique three years in a row, massive floods, which people have been displaced. The, the, the heat wave in Canada just now is another example. So I think the only general comment I would 
want to sort of emphasize right now because I think the activists who are campaigning have, have you know have uh, are full of ideas and 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 are, and are not letting up but the more general point would be that um that all of us I think now those who are committed to it even though if we think we're not in a majority particularly the eco socialist we would never we've got to make a commitment now that we never ever ever give up uh, that we never ever give up because there's, the things can always, always get a lot worse. And what I do foresee, and what I'm a bit concerned about at the moment, is that that the that the that elements of the ruling class are going to make a switch, a switch from climate denial, saying that there's no problem, to automatically to jumping straight to saying, well, it's too late to act. And 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 I think that's already happening in some cases, and and they're going to make that switch. Um, and use the, the heart, try to very much to harness the despair and fear um, about climate change, and to harness that in in, in ways which which uh, blame somebody else, and particularly which blame uh, racial minorities, which blame migrants, um, which try to harness the despair and turn it into hatred. Um, and I think there's elements of that already taking place, particularly in Europe, where you have. For instance, in Denmark, you have a government which is talking uh, uh, sort of a, a centrist kind of government, which is talking about um, actions on climate change, but is also carrying out um, a very, very racist migration policy and, and very racist towards migrants. You have the potential for a Le Pen government in France who promote themselves as a Green Party now because they're against migrants. And I think... Um, there's a, there's a real danger that that despair um, is going to, the political right is going to can you use that to harness um, to to make for, for I guess an eco-fascist response to the climate climate crisis as well because um, the, for for the for the capitalist class they don't really have anywhere to go um, climate change is real it is going to get worse and so that there's you can see why the the there is elements of the elites already reaching for that kind of thing so. Things can get worse, um, and we are the ones who have a, a notion of, of, I guess, confidence in the capacity of, of ordinary people to change the world for the better. Um, even if we have a world which is wrapped by climate change, nothing is too late that it can't get worse. It's never too late to to build a world based on human solidarity um, and, and to make sure that no matter what happens, that we do our very best to organise a society where we we try. We fight for every single life, and we fight for all, for all the for, our, for every single species as well. So that would be my general point. It would be never ever give up. We can never ever give up on this. And that prompts me to ask, I guess, two things. I mean, potentially related. One is a question of hope. Like, what do you think is the hope for uh, for you know, that climate activists can can take in the current situation? And related to that. Uh, some people might think that the ruling why is some people might be questioning why is the ruling class not taking further action uh why the you know the, the capitalist rulers of the corporations and the governments that they control um surely they're all going to be affected everyone's going to be affected by climate change why aren't they taking more action and, and why can we not expect them to take action hmm. i think i think it's part, partly it's related to the fact that the capitalist capitalism itself is is, is incapable of responding to long-term problems in this way, um, so that the way that, that capitalism has already always in the past has dealt with the environmental crises that it that it creates is the, the environmental rifts 
that capitalism creates is to shift the problem elsewhere. Um, so capitalism is a is a sort of system of dealing with with you know, the way it relates to crises in nature is a system of rifts and shifts. So it creates a rift and then then its solution um, shifts the problem elsewhere, which inevitably creates a greater and greater rift. So I think the way that the ruling class and the way that capitalism will respond to, to climate breakdown is increasing nationalism, um, increasing militarism, you know, um, uh, through war, through warfare, through different ruling classes around the world deciding that we, if there are limited resources, then we are going to fight for them and, and take them off somebody else. Um, and so that, that is the way that capitalism and then the, it has always responded to crises in the past and based on that history, I think it's quite likely that they will do so in the future. So even though, yes, I guess a, a complete climate apocalypse will mean that there's no one, no one can do business anymore, capitalism is not, as a system, is incapable of, of, of thinking the long term. It has to maintain, uh, always has to focus on the short-term, immediate short-term profit. Um, so the only response we can, we can expect from capitalist interests is to simply try to shift the problem elsewhere. Um, to, to make other people bear the bigger cost of a climate breakdown, usually people in the global south, for instance. Um, so I think that's what we can expect from, from, from the capitalists. Thanks, Simon. Thanks very much for joining us. Thanks for taking the time to join us for, today on the Green Dev Show. Um, I would like to remind you that if you like the work that we do, please become a Green Left supporter if you're not already. It's the best way to, to, uh, to both support our work and to get our content. But even without paying a single cent, you can support the work we do simply by giving a thumbs up to this video or this podcast, however you're listening to it. If you can make a, a, a review on Apple Podcasts, that would be helpful. Share the video, share the, the link on the Green Left Online. However you're, however you're uh, reaching this episode of the Green Left Show, please help us spread the word so we can help build the audience. Thanks again, everyone, for joining us. I hope you got a lot out of this episode. To continue producing shows like this, we need your support. Consider becoming a supporter for $5 a month, sharing this show on social media, and submitting your own stories. You can do all this at our website, greenleft.org.au. All right, you're listening to Green Left um, Radio, and you're just listening to an interview um, that Alex Bainbridge did as part of a of the Green Left um, show. Now, just um, we have a, we're going to be having an interview, I guess, in a in a few minutes, uh, or well, two to three minutes. Um, so I just wanted to um, basically um, do, do a bit of a quick news story from Green Left. Um, and one of the one of the um, one of the um, the news stories that um, I want to sort of actually wait. I can't, can't really I'm trying to just find a quick news story. <laughs> wait. Okay, here we go. Um, so just to give a bit of report, a bit of an update on a campaign that we kind of reported on kind of earlier. Um, there was a whole, um, in one of the previous weeks, um, there's been this whole kind of dispute organised by workers at Better Red Than Dead at a, a bookshop in Newtown who have basically been um, campaigning for a, a workplace agreement. Um, with better wages and conditions. And so the support is clearly growing with um, an online meeting that um, drew in kind of 100, um, hundreds of people, um, hundreds of workers. And basically the better um, red than dead workers um, 
want um, an enterprise bargaining agreement that um, includes a living wage, job um, security, protections, workplace health and safety policy and a sexual harassment policy. And of course, they've been working with RAFU um, since last year and in June won the first ever protected action ballot order for a retail workplace outside the meat industry. And one of the exciting things is the workers themselves unanimously voted to take industrial action with a 100% turnout. They are planning to initiate a ban on overtime on handling cash and will no longer update window displays. They said they would escalate industrial action if management doesn't respond positively. And RAFU Secretary Josh Cullen said the bookshop workers had been targeted and commended them um, on standing up to threats and bullying. The management is more likely to run this business into the ground than negotiate with workers. So, yeah, that's just a bit of... Um, you can read more um, about um, about this. And I guess one a bit of a plug, you could, I would consider donating to the Be- um, Better Red Than, um, Than Dead Workers Strike Fund. You can also follow RAFU on Facebook um, for updates. And yeah, so just look up on greenleft.org.au um, in the news section to, um, to um, find the article about the better red than dead workers kind of up um, dispute. Um, so yeah, I'll just go play um, a quick announcement. Um, you are listening to Green Left um, Radio. Three CR, always bringing you the latest union news. They're coming after us at the moment. They want to get rid of penalty rates, the big push from businesses. They want to get rid of all the things that you and I have fought for. So there's tens of thousands of jobs gone, contracted out to sham contracting arrangements. On 8.55am and on the web, 3cr.org.au. To enable change, we need to show broad community support. Show your support for walking and cycling in the city of Yarra by appearing as a champion on the Streets Alive website, representing your local street, neighbourhood or school. It's fast, free and simple. Learn more at streets-alive-yarra.org. A 3CR supporter. Right, you are listening to Green Left Radio, and on the phone we have Annette Brownlee, um, who is um, the chairperson of the Independent and Peaceful Australian um, Network. Um, Australia Network. Um, so, good morning, Annette. Uh, good morning, Jacob. Um, so, Annette, um, we have you on the program today um, because um, IPAN kind of recently sent a media release um, essentially condemning Australia's hosting of US kind of war games. Um, and basically, I wanted to kind of give you, can you give us a bit of a kind of an explanation and a summary of that kind of situation and what exactly this kind of um, war, US war games entails in the region? Yeah, sure. Um, well, obviously, um, as a, uh, a network of organisations who are looking towards independence for Australia and a peaceful independence, we're very concerned about the savour exercises that happen on the Queensland coast every couple of years. They alternate with another major US-led uh, military exercise around the naval around the waters of uh, Hawaii called RIMPAC or Rim of the Pacific. 
So, you know, what we see happening is, uh, in fact, a, a massive build-up of um, military uh, activity and international forces uh, across the Pacific and the Western Pacific and uh, Southeast Asian area. And, and we're very concerned that, uh, that this is um, part of the process of building up to um, a potential war with China, which I know that sounds ridiculous to even say it because it's so unthinkable. However, uh, all the indicators are there that um, this is what is happening uh, with the leadership of the United States, but involving Australia very heavily. Hmm. So, yeah, it's all part of the Pacific pivot, which in fact was why IPAN formed uh, almost 10 years ago now when uh, President Obama at the time, along with Julia Gillard, announced the intention for Australia to host a permanent force of US Marines in Darwin. Well, they, um, I want to. There's a kind of two kind of aspects I sort of want to cover, but I'll cover them in two separate kind of questions. I guess I kind of want to hear a bit more of a kind of elaboration on the question, I guess, around war against China and what are some of the other sort of developments, I guess, that has happened in terms of um, the mo- um, in this movement in ter- um, from from the Australian government that also kind of pivots towards, I guess, this kind of direction. Yeah, sure. Um, Like many of your listeners might know or may not know that the 2,500 Marines in Darwin was just a very thin edge of the wedge uh, because since that time of the announcement, we've now seen um, Air Force um, facilities built up in in, um, Darwin and uh, south of Darwin at Tyndall Air Base. Uh, at Amberley, outside of Brisbane, at um, uh, the the air base outside of Newcastle. So it's not just a stationing of a few Marines here to uh, work with the United States if the remote possibility that we went to war against an enemy in our region. Uh, in the past, that enemy really wasn't named, but they're quite open now that it is about China. And right at this very moment, we've got a crowded Pacific. We have naval vessels just about from everywhere on the planet. We, you know, the uh, United Kingdom has sent naval vessels in to the South China Sea most recently, but those naval vessels will be stationed off the coast of Japan permanently. We've um, had naval vessels from Canada, from France, New Zealand, from Australia, all passing through the South China Sea, the so-called freedom of navigation, which is really an incredible provocation to China. And if that was happening, I mean, we get alarmed because we've got a couple of surveillance um, Chinese ships off the coast of Queensland while these talisman sabre exercises are underway. You know, imagine what it's like. You know, the reaction that you get from China is quite understandable when you've got all these vessels on their coastline. Um, yeah, so I could go on. I mean, there is, you know, obviously a uh, a strategy to build uh, capacity to attack China from a range of countries, mm. from Australia, but also from Philippines, from Guam, from Okinawa, from South Korea. Uh, so you've you've got this very alarming situation. 
Yeah. And going back to, I guess, the hosting of the um, the Talisman Sabre um, sort of um, war games, because um, the war practice, because one of the interesting, one of the things, things you mentioned um, in terms of basically the impact, um, basically its impact on how it will negatively impact and risk this kind of spread of COVID-19, because I guess just one comment I kind of want to add, it's sort of blows kind of my mind that this of this event that apparently where thousands of foreign troops are apparently going to be flying into kind of our shores when the government is kind of regularly going on about how we have to close the borders we can't you know risk um australia um, we have to keep capping the uh, numbers of returning australians and of course generally because of the COVID 19 pandemic um, many community groups, um, many organisations um, have had to actually cancel um, events, including, I mean, even sports, um, sporting events have had to be cancelled as a result of the COVID-19 pandemic. So I kind of want to hear, like, how does, the, how does the government actually justify hosting this, um, something that involves thousands of foreign troops coming into the country, um, to participate in this um, in this yeah. kind of spectacle and and you know that just reflects a lot of hypocrisy and a real double standard from our own government. Sure does, Jacob. Yeah, um, we learnt just recently that the eight thousand American troops that um, are here um, now there are seventeen thousand altogether participating in this uh, talisman saber exercise, um, but um, a lot of them, a lot of the naval um, uh, personnel, I suppose. Um, actually stay on naval vessels, but Brisbane's hotels were used to um, um, provide the uh, quarantining for a large number of the uh, those foreign troops entering um, Australian territory. And at the same time, we had the Queensland um, Premier talking about capping uh, re-entry of Australians. Um, because there's not enough room in the in the hotels for hotel quarantining. So yeah, it is incredibly hip, hypocritical, and 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 it, the Australian people probably don't actually know too much about that. The hmm. COVID is a good reason for it not to happen at all, but more importantly, the reason for it not to happen at all is because of what it means for our foreign policy, what it means for the environment. You know there's um, you know, the track record of Talisman Saber is very poor. I don't know where Migaloo, the white whale, is right now. I think he was spotted off the coast of Victoria in May. So there's a good chance that he's made his way up to those same waters that um, maritime naval exercises are happening on. You know, you have huge environmental issues around sonar that are around dropping uh, bombs, even if they're not loaded um, for explosion, but you know the, this is unthinkable when the uh, reef is, you know, on the endangered list, and we're allowing this to happen around the Great Barrier Reef. You know, it's cr- crazy that we've got Susan Lee going to Europe to try and convince them not to take it any further in terms of the characterisation of the reef when they allow this to happen. Mm. Yeah, definitely. I think it. Um, 
I think the the import um that you raise I guess a really kind of important point around the actual environmental destruction or the actual environmental waste that will be incurred as a result of this um, event essentially going ahead. And I guess I want to kind of hear just the one other kind of aspect um, is what do you kind of think about the implications of this in terms of our you know this um this kind of military kind of build up in relation to sort of our relationship with the pacific oh, it's a really good point that you raised jacob because um and again we have um morrison treating the pacific nations as if they're his you know children a very paternalistic approach to our foreign policy with the people of the pacific who have suffered incredibly as a result of militarism in the past I don't know whether you're aware of it, but just uh, a few days ago, a thousand people protested, demonstrated en masse in Tahiti, tiny little Tahiti, about the French Pacific nuclear tests, the Polynesian tests, you know, now, you know, over 50 years ago. And, um, you know, this is ongoing, the militarisation of the Pacific. Uh, you, you know about, you know, the nuclear dump on the Marianas Islands that is at risk of breaking open as a result of rising sea levels. Um, We've got Guam now experiencing the um, operation, they call it Operation Pacific Iron, this one that's going on at the moment. One of our colleagues in Guam was telling us about how the incessant, the F-22s, it's the most F-22s that have been used around Guam uh, in their memory, um, so you know this is this we are playing into this build-up of the uh, of the U.S. military forces going along with it in the Pacific. Now, ITAN has recently uh, formed and part of a Pacific Peace Network, so we're we're working very closely with our Pacific neighbours on this, and this is the sort of thing that should be happening actually in a you know, a general sense from our government. Instead of working with the United States to build up the military, we should be working with our Pacific neighbours, our Southeast Asian neighbours, on cooperation around the genuine security issues that we we face, climate change, pandemics, inequality, the lack of educational opportunities for children in many parts of the world that we live in. So these are, this is the positive side of what we should be doing instead of falling into the trap of just being the lackey of the United States where we live. Yeah. Well, I think you um, kind of raised um, a lot of kind of good points. And I guess we're kind of running out of, bit of our time kind of now. I guess, do you have, any guess, any kind of final comments to make, like basically answering how people can raise awareness about this issue, because this is actually an issue that really isn't necessarily being reported in the mainstream media at all. There's no kind of outrage um, about it. Um, while there's always plenty of out... Um, the media always likes, as I sort of um, alluded to, the media likes to um, pop up a lot of outrage for even quite menial things in the context of this kind of COVID-19 pandemic, like this one... like. Um, like these individuals being irresponsible during the pandemic, but then we have this a clear case of our federal government being irresponsible in the midst of a health pandemic, and no one's actually talking about it. So, yeah, sure. Look, I think it's important for your listeners to realise that the only way we're going to see change happen is if there is a, a groundswell from the community. I encourage everyone who's got concerns about this to ring your parliamentarian, your local parliamentarian today. Our parliament's not sitting, so they're in their 
in their um, electorate offices today. Um, and to think about joining IPAN, you know, we need more people to be um, working together, and the only way to do that is through organisations, whether it's a, a local environment group, a political group that you or a party that you want to be part of. But um, go to the IPAN website, ipan.org.au, and, uh, and join IPAN. Form a local group where you are. This is the only way we're really going to affect change because we've got a bipartisan uh, agreement between the two major parties to support the alliance with the United States. I might add it's, uh, we're coming up to the 70th anniversary of the ANZUS alliance, which is far more than a military alliance. It's an ideological uh, relationship with the politics of the United States. It's time we ended that relationship. All right. Well, thank you very much, um, Annette. Um, yeah, it's been a very um, important and informative um, discussion we've just had. So, yeah, thank you very much for um, being well, on our program. Thank you very much. Yes, thank you very much for hosting this. Uh, it is such an important issue. Okay. All right. Um, you'll, we'll just interview um, Annette Brownlee, from, um, who's the chairperson of the Independent and Peaceful um Australia um, Independent and Peaceful Australia Network. Um, so I'm just going to go play a quick announcement, and we'll go on to to the Green Left um, activist calendar. The Black Lives Matter movement is not going away here or overseas. It gives me hope seeing the numbers of people that turn out to these Invasion Day demonstrations in Melbourne. It gives me the understanding that we will win, folks. We will succeed! Subscribe to 3CR in 2021. Feed Radical Radio. Subscribe today. Go to 3cr.org.au forward slash subscribe or call the station on 94198377. All right, you're listening to Green Left Radio, and now it is time for the Green Left um, Activist Calendar. Um, now, unfortunately, most of the events um, have been postponed because of the um, COVID-19 pandemic, um, but there's still quite a number of events um, happening. And, of course, lockdown is is supposed to be ending on Tuesday, um, so we could, there potentially might be some in-person events coming up in in the future, but anyway, this is just what we've sort of got for um, for the um, for the Green Left Exit a number of online events. So there's going to be an online forum um, pursuing justice, um, human rights in the t- um, in the time of in the time in an age of crisis, and that's going to be hosted by the Wheeler Centre. So if you look at the Wheeler Centre, you can get a kind of Zoom link to the forum and everything. On Tuesday, July the 27th, there's going to be an online forum um, behind the Cold War on China, um, which is going to be an event um, launched by, um, organised by Green Left, and it's going to be happening online via Zoom. And basically, in um, in the event, it's um, it's basically we've seen kind of like an, an escalation of rhetoric against China, um, and so this forum is going to be a kind of discussion around the 
um, reasons around this dangerous level of anti-China propaganda by imperialist countries like the US and its allies. Um, so, yeah, and then maybe I'll give, um, Felix, do you want to go follow on from me? Sure. Well, uh, next up, we've got a um, rally in March, Stop Turkey's War on the Kurdish People, which is Saturday, August the 7th at 2 p.m. at the State Library, which is 328 Swanson Street. Um, not sure if this is going to go ahead because, uh, yeah, it should, we should be out of lockdown by then. So I think that hopefully, fingers crossed, that'll be uh, a real in-person event. Uh, following on from that, um, well, earlier than that, actually, Thursday, July 22nd, there's a postponed rally. So I'm not sure when it's been postponed to, but uh, stop the Northeast Link, 4.30 p.m., Manningham Square on Doncaster yeah. Road. So that rally was meant to kind of happen yesterday, so it has, um, yeah, has since been postponed. Um, and on Saturday, July the um, 31st, there's going to be a rally, um, Sri Lanka Not Safe for Tamils, um, organised by the Tamil Refugee Council. On Monday, August um, the 2nd, um, there's going to be a forum, Indefinite Detention for Refugees, what the new um, what the new law means, and that's going to be happening at 6.30pm at the Kathleen Syme Centre. Um, and then, of course, there's going to be um, the. Um, and then, of course, there's going to be um, another event. There's going to be a Wednesday on August 11th. There's going to be a rally. No trade-offs for Faulkner. Save our outdoor pool. And that's going to be happening at 6:15 p.m. at the Moreland Civic Centre. On Thursday, on Friday, August the 13th, there's going to be a vigil. Nine years too long. Free the refugees at 5:30 p.m. at Lincoln Square on Swanson Street. And then on Thursday, August the 19th, there's going to be a rally, student protest for climate action at 1pm at the State Library. And then on Saturday, August the 7th, if you live in the regional kind of Geelong area, there's going to be um, a speak out and the housing crisis in our community. And that's going to be happening at 1pm at Little Mallop Street in um, the Moor in Geelong. Hopefully the restrictions ease up and we can get a control on this uh, little outbreak that we've got in Victoria. So a lot of these things can go ahead. Yeah, so that just concludes um, the Green Left kind of Acticana in terms of all the kind of events um, that are c- coming up. Um, I guess just um, one thing I guess I'll do is um, just to give a bit of a plug to um, Green Left. Um, basically, Green Left, um, which is um, the publication that um, this radio program is um, part of, um, you know, relies on the generous kind of support of our supporters to keep people-powered, anti-capitalist kind of media kind of going. Um, so just like to make encouragement, if you if you like um, if you like to become a supporter, you can become a supporter for as low as $5 a month and you can just go up on the greenleft.org.au forward slash support um, to um, get um, get on that. So, yeah, I think we, we basically need all the support we could get. So I think it would be yeah, great if, um, yeah, we just make more supporters. Okay, now just quickly... Um, Maybe just for the next, um, we'll take a bit of a break and we'll plus play a bit of a song. So I was going to play Survivor's Tale by Les Thomas um, before, our ne- um, before our second interview for the program. You're listening to Green Left Radio.
took a leap of faith to make it so. Your mother and I both owed you in our home. We couldn't share a home, and so we had to part. But we shared a love when we gave you your name. And if nothing else, please know you're not. Be an invocation. Sing us softly at the dawn. Survivors' tales were written in you on the day that you were born. Can you hear the voices of the ones before? From the many ships that landed on this shore. From this land itself, they are here to guide and they are here to help. Well, the lessons learned, we'll see you through. Yeah, the gifts they pass from us to you. Cause there are no riches but the riches of love. Right, you're listening to Green Left Radio, and you're just listening to um, Survivor's Tale by Les Thomas. Um, now, just quickly, just go to play. I'll just play. I'll just be playing a quick announcement after that. Um, just got to get um, the next interview kind of sorted. You're listening to Green Left Radio. Online and nationwide, right across Australia from the 1st to the 31st of July and at Cinema Nova from the 21st to the 31st of July, Melbourne Documentary Film Festival's Documentary Month showcases the best local and international documentaries. Check out the incredible lineup at mdff.org.au, cinemanova.com.au and watch.eventive.org forward slash mdff and book your tickets and streams today. Melbourne Documentary Film Festival is a 3CR supporter. Always bringing you the latest union news. 
They're coming after us at the moment. They want to get rid of penalty rates, the big push from businesses. They want to get rid of all the things that you and I have fought for. So there's tens of thousands of jobs gone, contracted out to sham contracting arrangements. On 8.55am and on the web, 3cr.org.au. Just to introduce um, Leo, Leo's um, um, actually a student um, at Monash, um, and he's also part. I think he's also serves on uh, on one of the uh, on a student, uh, um, basically a committee member of one of the um, education committees, um, and was elected at the one of the last kind of state elections. Um, so we have Leo on the program today to talk about. There's basically been a recent sort of anti-democratic kind of move um, by the existing elected student um, councillors and um, office bearers um, to essentially ban in-person campaigning in Monash. And so, yeah, Leo, I want to kind of hear a bit of an explanation on this kind of situation and why it's anti-democratic. Sure. Well, thanks for having me, Jacob. Um, first of all, um, that's right. Um, uh, the MSA, the Monash Association, the Student Union for... Um, Clayton Campus, the biggest campus at Monash University, um, adopts its annual sort of election regulations each year, um, specifying, you know, all the um, details about how the election is to be run. Um, and, uh, you know, this time round, um, uh, one of the provisions that was sort of sneakily included wasn't really advertised, wasn't consulted at all, you know, it's tried to it was tried to be sneaked in, you know, while we were in lockdown, is to ban all in-person campaigning. Um, now, the justification for this, um, you know, change was um, under the guise of COVID-19. Um, you know, according to the um, Quinter Together, the sort of incumbent ticket in the MSA, it is far too dangerous to be able to campaign in person. Um, as I'll sort of you know, allude to later, I think this sort of reasoning is, you know, completely wrong. I think it's, you know, sort of gaslighting us to believe in the wrong, um, you know, justification for this change. Um, but just on your question specifically, why it's anti-democratic, um, you know, this sort of change, essentially banning in-person campaigning, heavily favours um, the incumbents. You know, this is a significant restriction on, you know, the ability to discuss the election and to be able to, um, you know, interact with voters. Um, this essentially restricts the election to social media and online only, which itself is already heavily restricted. You can't post in groups, you can't post in, you know, group chats, etc., etc. Um, so by, you know, limiting in-person campaigning, which is, you know... Um, fundamentally different to online campaigning. You know, there's a certain um, there's a certain charm to being able to have conversations with voters in person. It's a great equalising factor. Every ticket, every candidate is able to able to talk to voters and discuss and put forward ideas. Um, that's not you know present um, if in person campaigning is um, banned. So, unfortunately, that was passed and. Um, yeah, we'll see what the impact of that is. Hmm. And I guess I want to kind of um, um, jump in, I guess, with a bit of a comment, I guess, and a question, uh, is that 
One of the, I guess, one of the things, one of the weird things about, I guess, the context, I guess, of this interview is, I mean, for some of our listeners, um, we are currently kind of in the midst, I guess, of a of a bit of a COVID kind of outbreak. And so in some ways, there might be some people who might say, oh, well, doesn't that sort of make sense? But I mean, one of the things I just want to sort of comment on is there actually has been a trend, and I've sort of noticed it for a while, where there's has been this, there's sometimes been attempts to kind of, uh, basically, there's been this whole trend of actually universities um, trying to kind of use, um, I guess, the COVID-19 pandemic to basically, you know, cut corners, um, cut courses, um, etc. And then, of course, at the same time, one of the things that's clearly um, about this kind of decision, I guess, and why it's problematic is it's sort of almost preempting um, the COVID-19 pandemic having some kind of group. Because obviously, if there was a COVID, if the COVID um, pandemic was raging during the in-person elections, because the in-person elections is, from my understanding, um, the elections are scheduled to be in September. There's actually a strong possibility um, that it will, um, that it was, um, you know, we might be actually be out of the COVID-19 outbreak by then. And, you know, um, basically, um, how would you sort of, um, do you think it, um, this kind of move actually fits kind of broadly within the kind of, within sort of the trends that have even been implemented by university administrations to kind of use the COVID-19 pandemic almost as a excuse to actually kind of cut corners and, you know, um, wind back services? Yeah, that's completely right. And, you know, I would take it one step further and say it's a trend being observed across society in general. Um, any sort of reactionary moves or anti-democratic moves, um, you know, during the midst of the COVID-19 pandemic, unfortunately, COVID is a, you know, really good and, you know, in many cases, ostensibly compelling, you know, reason to implement, you know, whether it's authoritarian measures or, you know, job cuts or anti-democratic measures like this, as you mentioned. Um, you know, COVID-19 is um, unfortunately a readily available excuse. I mean, this specific occasion, um, you're completely right once again. Um, it is almost preempting, um, you know, how the situation will be in two months' time. Um, um, but there's a couple of different factors to this. Um, on the one hand, um, no one knows how the situation will be in two months' time. Yes, we are currently in, um, you know, lockdown, but it's, you know, very conceivable um, that, you know, we come out of lockdown next week, let alone in, you know, by the time we get to late September. Um, but even, even if we don't, um, and if we are in lockdown and we're under restrictions, um, there would be no in-person campaign because we'd all be at home anyway. This was the case um, last year, and, you know, it's logical that we'd have an online campaign. So what's the point of banning in-person campaigning? I'd like to add here um, that this, you know, this sort of, um, you know, legislation, these regulations don't have any sort of, you know, sunset clauses. There's no proviso that, you know, expires after one year, two years, you know, one year is, you know, I guess the, you know, bare maximum here. Um, but once again, that's not being implemented. Um, you know, it's, it's not the case that we don't think that COVID-19 is a real threat. I think some sort of COVID-safe plan, like it was adopted um, during the 2020 local council elections, which I might add also went ahead, despite, you know, us being in a arguably relatively comparably worse COVID-19 
um, situation, you know, some sort of plan which bans, for example, in, uh, indoor campaigning or manage the use of QR codes, etc., etc. Um, you know, we completely support that. Um, but the fact that um, this change was brought in, you know, in a blanket sort of fashion, I think really reveals the true intentions behind Together and the current MSA's, um, you know, ban here. And, you know, it wasn't just banning in-person campaigning on campus. It was also banning the use of, um, you know, postering or banning the use of, you know, campaign T-shirts, which, of course, um, you know, have no real significant impact on um, transmission of COVID. It definitely, definitely sounds like... They have a very anti-democratic, um, you, like, tendency that they're, <laughs> they're they're looking for any any reason at all to clamp down on this sort of activity because they just don't like it. And this is a perfect excuse. And the fact that it's so far out in the future, um, they they're jumping on the gun right now rather than seeing what happens in you know, in September. Yeah, I mean the pitch. Um, or they'll let you finish. Yeah, just really quickly, yeah, that's right, Felix. Um, it's definitely convenient for them, and it's no surprise, um, as Jacob sort of alluded earlier, that the university management agrees with them. Um, we sort of um, um, tried to ask if there was any sort of medical advice for this sort of thing from the Chief Health Officer of Monash University. There was none. They said the university agreed with them, which is a completely different thing. And just to sort of briefly conclude... Um, the second part of this, that's completely hypocritical. The MSA is organising all sorts of in-person events, um, even before, you know, the elections in week nine or whatever, um, from in-person balls to, you know, events at Luna Park, you know. Essentially, these can go ahead, no no worries. But, um, you know, elections, which I would argue are, um, you know, arguably more important, um, you know, these are stifled. So, yeah. Any sort of excuse, it's very convenient for them um, to to sort of ban these types of elections. And of course, um, arguably, um, in-person election campaigning is actually can arguably be made more COVID-safe than any sort of in-person kind of event. So it's clearly there's like a double kind of standard here because if the MSA was so concerned um, about um, about um, you know. COVID-19 and the, the prospects of this election, why, why are they focused so much on elections? I mean, surely there's a lot, um, shouldn't they be also be, if they get to follow their logic to inclusion, shouldn't they be lobbying the university management to close down all in-person classes and go into online, um, or getting rid of, um, get, or, or making changes to, or closing down shops in universities? Like it's clearly there's, not there's not necessarily a logical consistency to what they're actually targeting on the pretense of COVID nineteen restrictions, and I think you kind of raise a very good point about the hypocrisy there. Um, do you have any guess? Any kind of we're running a bit out of time. Do you have any guess? Any final comments and how people can possibly um, lobby or campaign against um, to bring back in person campaigning within um, within Monash student elections because the student elections are still scheduled to happen. I think around September, which still gives a bit of time. For, to build a bit of a campaign. Yeah, that's right. Um, just as a sort of final concluding point, it is, you know, completely critical, it's anti-democratic, it's authoritarian, and it, you know, limits and stifles student participation, and it does so in a way that, um, um, that you know, has no real regard for health measures, but in a way that's also really convenient. Um, unfortunately,
unfortunately, the way the election regulations work, that they've been adopted by the Bono Student Council, um, they can't be changed before the election. Um, uh, the sort of coalition ticket group that I'm in, student boards, have been heavily campaigning against them and will continue to do so. But unfortunately, it looks like this election will be online. Um, but I guess the silver lining is these election regulations um, have to be sort of reviewed each year. So hopefully next year, if we do manage to retake the MSA, we'll you know definitely make sure to reverse these changes. But just as a final word, um, you know the MSA continue to do and implement these anti-democratic measures, and they continue you know to follow this trend of neoliberalisation um, of you know our university campuses. You know, depoliticising these elections as much as you can, making them some sort of trivial online Mickey Mouse election. But um, we'll make sure they don't get away with it. All right. Well, thank you very much, Leo. Thanks, Leo. Thanks. Thanks for having me on. Bye. All right, we're just doing an interview um, with Leo about um, the um, Monash Student Association's attempts. Well, they have. <laughs> They've essentially banned in-person successful campaigning, <laughs> successfully um, banned um, in-person campaigning for um, for the upcoming student elections, which are kind of due to kind of happen in September in, at Monash. Now, just play a quick announcement, and we'll probably end with just a quick kind of news story. You are listening to Green Left Radio. Goongaroo Environment Centre is a grassroots community organisation campaigning for East Gippsland's precious forests. For over 15 years, we've been using direct action, citizen science and community engagement to stop the continued logging of precious native forests and threatened species habitat. After this summer's terrible bushfires, there's an even greater urgency to protect what remains, and the Victorian government haven't ruled out plans to log the small fragments of unburnt forests and so-called salvage log in burnt areas. It's now so important that forests and wildlife are protected so they can recover. Head to gecko.org.au to keep updated with the latest news and to get involved. Gecko acknowledges the logging is happening on the stolen lands of the Gunakurnai and Bidwell and Monaro people and that sovereignty was never ceded. A 3CR supporter. All right, you're listening to Green Left Radio. Um, so for the last part of the program, I thought I would kind of conclude with a bit of a funny kind of news story. Um, so basically, Amazon CEO Jeff Bezos um, went out <laughs> into space for like four minutes into like some space. This thing has blown up on the internet so much. Every feed, everybody that I follow is <laughs> all over it. And it is... Quite hilarious. Like, yeah. There are so many different aspects of this story that I love. <laughs> yeah. Well, the fu- the funniest one was um, Jeff Bezos um, described the experience as one of the greatest moments in his life. Um, and then, of course, he also then, when he came back, he said something along the lines of, I want to thank every I want, Amazon... He said, he said, I want to thank all of the, wor- all of the employees and all of the customers to make this happen. Because you paid for it. I thought that was the most Marxist thing that anyone is, any CEO has ever said. Like, he is spot on. It's like, that's right. That's where the money comes from. It comes from the surplus labor of the workers and extortion of profiteering of the customers. Yeah. Well, <laughs> to, to pay for these, like, little adventures that he likes to go on. Yeah. Well, one of the, one of the kind of, um, one of the kind of funny kind of things about that is, you know, any sort of billionaire would probably say could, um, could um, Shane add a, make a make that line sound profound by saying, you know, it wasn't me, 
it was you. You made it all happen. <laughs> um, and that the, the fact that he, he went, he used the term pay. Yeah. Is, I think, quite stunning and quite hilarious. That's actually. the thing. These guys, especially Jeff Bezos, but like all the other billionaires, they're, they're weirdos. They're just weird people. And like, it's yeah. amazing when you hear what comes out of their mouths, just that they're not like gods. They're just, Really weird people. <laughs> yeah. Well, because they're so disconnected from what what, what ordinary people have to, um, have to live with. Yeah, they're, they're ordinary people who are just being plucked out of the anything that anybody else has to deal with, anything relatable by the vast majority of humanity, and yeah, they live in their own little fantasy universes. And like, and I, I just. A space aspect of this. I love space. Okay, I just love space exploration, science. I love the learning about the universe. It's fantastic. I'm quite obsessed with this sort of stuff. And it is quite shocking, really, that billionaires like Jeff Bezos, Elon uh, Musk, and Richard Branson have all essentially ruined it. Yeah, well, yeah, and especially with Jeff Bezos, like this, this right, it's not even getting into orbit. This is something that was achieved by first the Soviet Union and then the United States back in 1960. Like, this is... It's and it co- years and ago. also costs millions of dollars. And of course, years ago, and also the other thing, um, I'll just quickly end on this because we um, just want to um, thank all <laughs> yeah. our listeners for tuning in this week. Um, but I guess it's just the final point to kind of end the program on is one of the Jeff Bezos kind of actually responded to the criticism about about how wasteful this kind of trip was, and his response to that was, "Oh well, I hope it, it can expire." us as a society to move a lot of the unsustainable industries that we currently do off earth and i'm like what (laughs) um there are are a lot easier ways to achieve that um i mean there's actually a lot there's there's industrial base in orbit (laughs) the technology actually right now currently doesn't actually i don't think the technology currently exists to be able to transport a lot of industries and it's the amount of the amount of industry and carbon emissions in order to move the entire industrial base of the Earth into orbit or on the moon or wherever Jeff Bezos wants. We're talking decades or centuries and like a huge endeavour, like a warlike endeavour of humanity. And if we're going to spend that amount of energy, let's spend that on making the Earth sustainable right now. Yeah. Well, that's a good point to kind of end on. You're listening to Green Left Radio. Thank all our listeners um, and see you next Friday. See you, everyone. This brings us to the end of the show. You have been listening to Friday Morning Breakfast with Green Left Radio, brought to you by Green Left Weekly Newspaper, which brings an alternative source of information that puts people and planet before profit. If you like our work, become a supporter from $5 per month at greenleft.org.au slash support or free call one 634 206. Arise you workers from the slumbers. Arise you prisoners of want. For reason in revolt now thunders and at last since the age of Kant. Away with all your superstitions. Serve all masses. Arise. We'll change henceforth the old tradition and spurn the dust to win the prize. That's right. The commies are back. Reds underneath your beds and that crap.